if a person has been saved, can he or she become unsaved? If someone has a genuine salvation experience and or they're converted, can they turn away from that salvation and be lost forever? We have been talking about spiritual health in the church recently. And one thing I think needs to be brought to our attention is your salvation is very important to your spiritual health. To know that you are saved, some of you possibly are in this room and you don't know what I mean by salvation experience and or conversion because you don't know the Lord. And there are only two groups of people in the world, those who are saved and those who are lost. You understand there's no neutral, no in-between, you're either saved or lost. And so that's a very important thing to consider, is it not? Your salvation is so vitally important. And furthermore, in the book of Ephesians, when we're reminded of our spiritual armor, we're told that we need to put on the helmet of, of salvation. Yes. And I think in a lot of circles in Christianity, we don't even have our helmet on correctly. You know, I remember the story of Greg Brezina the first time he was a linebacker for the Atlanta Falcons and the first time he tackled Walter Payton. He, he was lying on his back after Payton ran over him and he was looking up only to see just black and he thought he was dead. And his helmet had gotten turned on his face and was covering up his eyes. And the fact of the matter is, many Baptists don't even have their helmet on straight. And how are you going to be worth anything in the battle or, or accomplish anything for the kingdom if you don't understand that you're saved and know why and know whether or not you can keep it? Dwight Moody once made this statement, I've never known anyone, anywhere, anytime, worth anything for the kingdom of God who wasn't saved and absolutely sure of it. Now that, my friends, is a bold statement. Well, let's look at a different angle. What if that's only half true? You know you're saved, but you're not sure you can keep it. Maybe you feel like you're about to be lost, categorized that way. And I think many, are people, many people are like this. With as many denominational persuasions as we have, even under uh, the, the screaming voice of your pastor from the front lawn out here. How many churches you have and different interpretations from the word uh, that they come, uh, different applications from the word that they come out with, I think it's very important in our day that we know what the doctrine of salvation is all about and that you, if you're saved, you don't live in constant fear that you can lose it. When I went to junior college, my first two years, I went to a Pentecostal school. Now, I was in the junior college, which, which wasn't associated with the four-year school, School of Christian Ministry, which was mainly Assembly of God and Pentecostalism. So I had real fun there as a Baptist. Lots of fun. And, and usually when I would give them Scripture and talk about the text and say, well, that's contradictory to what the Bible says, and you're giving me stuff that's not grounded in the Bible, they would say things like, well... The Lord is just contradicting himself. So no, that's not it at all. You feel like it's a contradiction, but you're just not following the flow of the narrative and you're not listening to what the text has to say. It's one thing for you to proof text things and think you know what something means by just sticking your finger in the Word, but it's another thing to know the context. A text without uh, a, uh, any kind of truth, without context, 
is going to get you in trouble. Anything you try to say uh, from the Bible, well, it says this. If you don't know the whole context, it's going to get you in trouble. In the book of Hebrews, the major theme is, of course, the supremacy of Jesus over everything. And he is over everything. He's the head of the church. He's seated at the right hand of the Father, even now, making intercession for us. But as far as the people are concerned, it's about the issue of not turning back. Now, you've got to keep that in your mind as you go through Hebrews. One day I will preach all the way through it. When I did this before, it took two years, primarily on Sunday mornings, to go through Hebrews. We're going to do it again, but for our benefit today, I want to think about this. You think about this. Those who were saved by grace through faith, the, the writer of Hebrews is saying to them, you don't want to go back to Judaism. You don't want to go back to trying to get your salvation through the law. Jesus is so much better. So much greater. As a matter of fact, he reminds them in Hebrews that all of those things in the Old Testament and under the Old Covenant were all shadows. Now folks, you can't have a shadow without a substance. The substance is the Lord Christ. The shadow he's projecting and, and to the trajectory of the shadow of, of the Old Testament was always Christocentric. The story of the Old Testament is about Jesus. It's completed in Christ. And so you have to think about that. And Hebrews is absolutely chock full of the Old Testament. And without a good grasp of it, you find yourself in trouble. But he's telling them, don't leave the shadow for the substance. The Old Testament, the, the, the Old Covenant was a shadow. And then he goes to say in chapter 1, you need to remember that Jesus is greater than all the prophets. And chapter 2 is greater than all the angels. What angel did God say to him? Neutral, by the way. What, is there ever been an angel where God said to them, you're my son? No, that's not the case. It's the son of God, right? In chapter 3, he's greater. Well, this will hurt the Jews' feelings. Jesus is greater than Moses, right? And then, of course, in chapter 4, he's greater than any high priest earthly because he is the great high priest. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to get them to understand that our great high priest has made a once for all sacrifice for sin that will never be repeated again. And Jesus Christ accomplished this. So this is a warning passage that you see in chapter 6. And there are five warning passages in the book of Hebrews. And unless we grasp what those warning passages are about, thus you need to come back tonight to realize that, uh, but the, the warning passages are so incredibly, uh, they have teeth to them. And they're strong. And it's not to be something you just pass off as, well, I'm a Baptist, I'm once saved, always saved, and I don't have to worry about anything. Well, folks, you can't treat the Word that way. They're given as a warning for a reason. If we just read along and bump over them and forget about them because we once saved, always saved, it's Baptist, we don't have to read the warning passage. I disagree totally. The first one is in chapter 2. Verse 1, therefore we must pay attention, close attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. Folks, that's a warning. Don't drift away. Chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, is your second warning section. He's going to talk about the children of Israel not entering the rest because they disobeyed God. Now verse 12, take care, brothers, lest there be any of you you, any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Second warning passage. Don't fall away. Don't turn back. That actual 
warning passage is the longest one in the book of Hebrews. It's going to take up the most room. But don't let your heart be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. The third warning passage I'm going to read to you in a few moments. And the heart of it is verses 4 through 8 in the book of Hebrews chapter 6. The fourth warning passage is in chapter 10. Give you a chance to look at it. Chapter 10 beginning in verse 19. The heart of it begins in verse 26 of chapter 10. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. He goes on to say it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. I don't know what you think about that, but that warning is pretty threatful. When you read that warning, you're thinking, oh, my goodness. And then, of course, the last one is found in chapter 12. And I would say to you, in chapter 12, it's given 14 through 29. And then verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. For if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less we will escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. Look on down to verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for God is a consuming fire. So, I know that was quick. Tonight, I'm going to spend more time on it. Five warning passages. And, of course, you've got to know those in their context to understand chapter 6. Now, are you ready for the passage this morning? Chapter 6, beginning in verse 4. Let's stand, stretch, and read it. I'll pick up in verse 1, just to get a running start, chapter 6 of Hebrews. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to the maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. In other words, the writer is saying those are the ABCs of the faith. It's high time that you made progress, that you didn't turn back, that you actually live what you are. Right? Verse 4. For it, is, for it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the Word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For, it be po for if it be possible for them to fall away, if they should fall away, it is impossible again to renew them into or unto repentance. What a text of Scripture. You may be seated. Now, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to pick one of you and let you come up and explain this text of Scripture. <laughs> and we're going to start, since he's a jokester, we're going to start with Blake. All right? The joke's on him, right? All right, all right. Again, when you get to chapter 6 and chapter 10, they're the sternest warnings. The threat in those warnings is complex, and it's controversial, and it's challenging. And here's what we have to ask ourselves. Who is he talking about? What is the nature of the sin that he's speaking of that would lead one to fall away? Are these people apparent believers, almost believers, actual believers? 
Now, it's important to realize that you never want to base a doctrine. It's very dangerous to base a full doctrine, like the doctrine of salvation, upon an obscure passage of Scripture. The general rule of thumb when you're interpreting the Bible is you translate the obscure in light of the obvious. What mu- we must look at the cumulative teaching of the Word of God, although I'm trying to be as objective as I can about this text, so that our charismatic brethren, uh, I give them their, their due, even though they're wrong. Okay, I make no apologies for that, because they're wrong. And they put people in captivity. It sounds great to get up and say, you better live for God or you're going to lose your salvation. That preach is good, it's just not Bible. Right? The reason you live the way you live is because you have been saved by grace through faith. Right? And so, what are these people? And who were they? What's the sin? And again, the cumulative teaching of the whole Bible must be our teacher here. I heard about this self-proclaimed, self-made Bible teacher who said, I have felt, I feel like I have figured out the cumulative message of the Bible, or I've figured out what the message of the Bible is. He said in the beginning... Adam listened to Eve, and he partook of the forbidden fruit and plunged all of mankind into sin. Sarah, later on, persuaded Abraham to take Hagar as his handmaid and conceive Ishmael, which was not good at all. And then he said, Ahab listened to Jezebel and led the children of Israel to worship false gods. And he said, the lesson of the Bible for a teacher is this, don't ever listen to a woman. (laughs) Now, folks, I don't think that's accurate, do you? Although it might be a good... No, I'm just kidding. All right, right. Let's allow the cumulative, the consensus of the whole, always line out your thinking when it comes to the Word of God. You make a grievous mistake, however, if you just read over this warning passage and say, you know what, it has no relevance in my life. It, it does have a very huge relevance in your life. So, let's ask the question. Could these be an actual believer? That's point one. A little bit of ink is better than the best memory. Write this down. Could this be an actual believer? And there are two camps, denominationally, that believe that these were actual, bona fide, born-again believers. So they would believe that what's going on in this text is, in fact, apostasy. They've had the faith. In their case, they think they've actually been saved, and they're walking away from their salvation. The first camp that believes that way would be the Arminian camp, and that's most of Pentecostal, Assembly of God, Church of God. Those are going to be more in the Arminian camp. But not only do they believe they were actual believers that lose their salvation, they think it happens in two stages. The first stage is that the believer can backslide and allow sin to cross out Christ in his or her life. But the other stage is that they can repudiate They can completely turn back on Christ and thus actively be in a state of unbelieving. In the first stage, you can repent and come back. In the second stage, you've committed the unpardonable sin and you've lost your salvation. Allow me to make a brief assessment of that camp. First, although it may appear that they're true believers, there's an abundance of evidence in the Word of God that teaches that one can look like the real thing, but in fact proved not to be the real thing at all. Notice how he says this in chapter 3, verse 6. I'm going to go fast. You just listen. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our 
God. Do you see here in the text, in verse 4, there's a shift to pronouns. And again, down in verse 9 of this particular chapter, it says, verse 9 of chapter 6, Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, belonging to salvation. We're convinced of better things if you've truly been saved. Thus the writer shifts from the pronoun of they in the past or we knowing Jesus as Lord and Savior. The second thing I would say is this. It undermines the total emphasis in the Bible on the fact that God will preserve His people. Folks, how many times in the Word of God does God make a promise to us that when you're saved for eternal life, that means it's nothing short than eternity. Hello, Tokyo. Are y'all listening? Aren't you thankful that when God saves us eternally, that it's nothing short than eternity? So if God saves us for eternity, and He teaches us that He's going to preserve His people, notice this, Jesus is the Lord over the house, and He's faithful to those in His house. Chapter 3, verse 6. So, the Bible teaches that His people persevere. Note the grammar. You fulfill the part... You fulfill the part, right, because you're in the house. So the then part, since you are His, you fulfill the if part. I'm His, and therefore as you live your life, you're actually fulfilling it. When the if is true, the then is true. Okay? They're going to, charismatics are going to look at that and say, See there, you're in the house, but you just might not stay in the house. You're missing the point of what the writer is saying when it comes to the perseverance of the saints in endurance. It is endurance and it is perseverance that give evidence that you are actually a partaker of salvation and you're in the house at all. The reason you persevere is because you're in the family of God. The reason you persevere is because you are born of God. So in the end, the Arminian position does not adequately deal with the text in Hebrews or the entire Bible at all. So that's the first camp, the Arminians, right? They believe it's actual believers who have lost their salvation. There's a second camp that believes they were actual believers. And this is going to be the camp that believes this is actually not about salvation at all. It's about losing reward slash covenant blessings. And they say, they cite Israel as an example. They would say that, you know, most of those Israelites were saved... They just missed out on covenant blessings because they didn't obey God. So, you have probably been taught this particular line of thinking. Either this or a hypothetical situation. Well, it's not hypothetical. If it be possible for these to fall away, knowing you can't fall away, but it's just hypothetical, then there would be no more need for a sacrifice, hypothetically, right? But the deal in this one is that as a person living your Christian life, Losing your salvation is not even an option. But what we usually see is Baptists and people not actually living up to their potential. So what this warning is saying is that if you don't live up to your potential, then you're not going to have all the covenant blessings that go along with salvation. Thus, you know, furthermore, they're going to think that you can't lose your spiritual life here. That's not in order. But you might die physically. God might kill you. Is there any evidence in the Bible that God might take His children home if they sin against Him? You better believe it. You remember Moses? God spoke to Moses. 
And Moses disobeyed. Instead of listening to God and speaking to the rock, he struck it and God said, you're dead. And no one's ever going to recover your bones. I'm going to bury you in a place nobody's going to ever find you. Of course, he's with the Lord, right? But the fact is, Moses disobeyed. And so there are people who believe that apostasy is not even in view at all here. It's just the difference between being a mature Christian versus being, might we say this tongue-in-cheek, like most Baptists. Right? Just kind of middle of the ground, including me at times. So they lose covenant blessings. I want to make a couple of statements about this camp of thinking that believe that this is not talking about salvation, that it's only talking about covenant blessings that you might lose as a believer. First, it's very dangerous to make a one-in-one comparison with the Israelites. Y'all know that, don't you? It's very dangerous to do this. Folks, the book of Hebrews teaches, in large part, the biggest argument is the lesser versus the greater. And the lesser was the old covenant. And the greater is the Lord Jesus Christ. The book of Hebrews teaches this. So it's about the mediating work of the Son of God. It is qualitatively and exponentially better. And folks, here's the deal with you. The greater the knowledge, the greater the responsibility. And this is going to lead the writer to say, folks, in our era, you have a huge responsibility. How will you ever neglect, if you ever neglect so great a salvation, we, we have a judgment coming upon us that far supersedes any judgment the Israelites would have ever gotten. Why? Because you've been given the full knowledge of who Jesus Christ is. 100%. So, consider chapter 10, verse 29. What does the word say? Just listen as I read it. Verse 29. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace. Well, there's a huge lesser to a greater, isn't there? When it comes to what we've heard and what we know about the Lord Jesus Christ. Folks, the sin here is nothing less than apostasy. You can't make it mean anything else. To dumb it down, that's the terrible thing to do. Uh, the fact of the matter is, if we do that, if we do what the writer is saying in the warning, then there is no more sacrifice for your sin. So there's no question that this is apostasy. has nothing to do. I mean, that's pretty stern judgment. Uh, I mean, think about that for a moment. You're just saying a few loss of, uh, of rewards and a few covenant blessings, and then the writer says that you're going to fall under the fury of an awesome God if you do this. It's more than just a covenant blessing, ladies and gentlemen. These who fall away, folks, never repent. Y'all see that? So, let's put that to the side. Actual believers. How many of you understand that the preacher believes they were not actual believers? Y'all got that much of it? Okay, definitely. Here's the second thing. Could this be apparent? Could this be an apparent believer? And obviously, the clear teaching of the Word of God is that there are times that there are unbelievers among the people of God. Right? There, there are times in the teaching of Scripture, it's very, the fact is true that you've got apparent believers among those who claim to know the Lord. Jesus said this, right? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you can even call him Lord, Lord, and you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. He also teaches that there are tares among the wheat. He reminds them to be careful how you separate the tares and the wheat because in the process, you might snatch up the wheat. And that has to do with the teaching of the Word and trying to decide who's saved and who's not. 
In Matthew 13, Jesus talks about the seed that we sow into soil. Some of it springs into life quickly, but immediately it goes away and dies. That explains the situation of a lot of professing believers who readily dive right back into the same sinful lifestyle after they've walked an aisle in the Baptist church, but there's no change. Right? And we see that given in the Word. Uh, D.L. Moody, again, since we're on a Moody kick, we'll quote him one more time. He was out on the streets of Chicago one day after he had preached a revival. And a man walked up to him, and he was sloppy drunk. And he said to Moody, Moody, right? You know how Otis is on Andy Griffith? He says to him, I want you to know, Moody, that I'm one of your converts. And Moody said, well, brother, that's the problem. You might be one of my converts, but you're certainly not the Lord's convert. Uh Uh-oh. Right? Boy, it got quiet when I said that. I thought somebody might laugh a little bit. But 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22, says this. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 22. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit, and the sow, after washing herself, returns to wallow in the mire. Well, I think it's pretty safe to say that you can clean a hog up. You can give her a bath. You put a red bow on her neck, kiss her on top of the forehead, turn her out of the house, and she goes back to the mud. You can call her Daisy, Sweetie, Cutie, whatever. A hog will always be a hog. And I'm not talking about Arkansas Razorbacks, right? (laughs) What happened to a dog? You can clean that thing up. You can take him to the whatever you take him to to get him all spoofed up. I don't know what them dog groomers are called. But anyway... It will return to its vomit. The nature of the individual has not changed. That is so true when it comes to the gospel, isn't it? If there's no nature change from the inside, where we're totally depraved and we're given the very nature of Christ, if there's no change, then no matter what we do, there's not going to be a change unless it's from the inside out. So here's the deal. They're apparent believers, but what if they reject Christ? What will happen? The fact of the matter is, according to the text, they'll be lost forever. They'll be often an embarrassment to the church because they've been in and among us. And all of a sudden, they're just gone. 1 John 2, right? They went out from us because they were not part of us. Had they been of us, they would have continued. Does that sound like a theme to Hebrews? If you're in the house, you're going to continue. If you're truly saved, you're going to persevere. And John sounds just like that. The premise is that God will preserve His people. And if you say, well, what belief is this? What camp is that in? Most Baptists, well, a lot of Baptists are going to take my take on this, that they were apparent believers, but not true believers. And also, a lot of those in the Presbyterian or Calvinistic camp are going to believe that these were apparent believers, but not actual believers at all. Salvation, folks, is given to us by a faithful father through a perfect son. Perfect Savior. Y'all do realize this. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. Listen to this. Consequently, He is able to save to the uttermost. Don't you love that? He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him. I'm going to touch on this at the end of the sermon. Since He always lives to make intercession for them. Listen to 10.14. For by a single offering, all folks, let the weight of God's Word Speak to your heart. Listen to 10.14 of Hebrews. For by a single offering, He has perfected 
for all time those who are being sanctified. Glory! Right? I mean, folks, if you perfect for all time, that means he dealt with your past, present, and future tens, uh, sins. It's a past perfect verb. That means it was accomplished in the past with continued results to the future that can never be thwarted. Think about that. He has perfected for all time. Think about that for a moment. He's perfected it. You know, in other words, a perfect Savior who gave a perfect sacrifice saves you perfectly and for all time. That's what the verse means. Nobody's saying hallelujah or anything. I hope you're, I hope you're just getting the teaching and you're understanding it. Genuine salvation. Genuine saving faith is persevering faith. Please see this. If you've genuinely been saved, you are going to persevere. You're not going to turn back. You're not going to do those things. Endurance is not the cause of being in the house. But it's the evidence of the fact that you are actually in the house. That you are a partaker of the nature of the king. So in the end, Hebrews 4, chapter 6, 4 through 6, reveals how close you can be in appearance, but not in reality. They had an appearance of conversion. I'm going to go through each one tonight, if you come back. But they had no endurance. This is obviously, of course, where I land. I'm trying to be as objective as I possibly can. But it blows my mind when people who know absolutely nothing about the languages of the Bible come up to you and tell you you can lose your salvation. But they've never one time studied what the Word has to say. Tell them to take their Bible and study it, then come back and talk to you. Right? Instead of just some kind of tradition taught by somebody from a pulpit, and we just believe it hook, line, and sinker. Look, folks, even a cow has enough sense not to take everything hook, line, and sinker. If you give a cow hay and sticks, guess what it'll do? It'll eat the hay and leave the sticks. But a lot of Baptists will gobble up every single thing that people give them. And they haven't gone to the Word to find out what the Bible has to say about it. Folks, I haven't just tasted of eternal life. I have experienced it completely. You remember the text of Scripture here? Understanding this? I haven't just experienced salvation. I am a possessor of it. I have not just tasted the good word, but I've been washed clean by the word. Three things I want to say to you. Just applications. The Spirit is in the believer not allowing you to deny Christ. Aren't you thankful for that truth? 1 Corinthians Listen to the word. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols. However, you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say that Jesus is Lord except through the Holy Spirit. Are y'all listening? Are y'all listening to the text of Scripture? So the Spirit is in the life of the believer, not allowing you to deny Christ. And if you deny Him, it's evidence that you didn't know Him to begin with. You can surely disobey. You can surely displease Him. And you can receive the chastisement of God upon your life. Furthermore, Hebrews 12 is irrelevant if you can lose your salvation. What does Hebrews 12 say? Whom the Father loves, He disciplines. And He scourges everyone that comes to Him. And if you don't receive spankings from God, then you're a bastard. That's the literal word. You're an illegitimate child and you don't belong to God if you don't receive discipline. Well, folks, why do you need discipline if you're going to lose your salvation like you throw down your keys? That's a good question, isn't it? Maybe further sermons on that, right? 
Those who know Jesus, the Holy Spirit of God will not let you deny Him. Number two, Christ has a greater hold on you than you've ever had on Him. Let me show you a couple of those verses. I'm going to get there before you are because I've got them marked, right? Chapter 6, verse 37. Listen to the word. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will not cast out. He has a greater hold on you than you have on him. John 10, 27, the Bible says, and verse 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life. By the way, that's nothing short than eternity. I give them eternal life, and they will follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one will ever snatch them out of my hand. Thank God for the word. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow. Just go ahead and think about the height, nor depth, nor any other thing. Think about the ramifications of that. Once you're in Christ Jesus, which is a theme of Romans, nothing can separate you from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. How about Philippians 1, 6? I am confident that he who has begun a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. He has a whole lot better grip on you than you will ever have on him. To God be the glory. Here's the third thing. God is a father who will never disown his people. That's the promise from the Word. Furthermore, the Scripture teaches that there is a golden chain of redemption. Can I show it to you? It's also in chapter 8 of Romans. Listen to this. For those whom He also foreknew, that means to mark out a boundary before time, He also predestined, that means to put the mark on, to be conformed to the image of His Son in order that He might be brought to be the firstborn of many brothers. Listen to the golden chain of redemption. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he also justified, those he also just those he, who he also justified, those whom he justified, he also glorified. Do you see the golden chain? Foreknowledge, predestination, calling, justification, glorification. Now, folks, y'all know anything about grammar? What do you notice about every single one of those verbs? They're in the past tense. Your very glorification before the Father in heaven one day, when you shall see Him as He is and be like Him, it's already planned by Christ. How are you going to break that golden chain? It's almost like people believe, well, God wrote my name in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world, but then He pulled out His eraser and He scratched it out. I mean, come on, folks. Those are all past tense verbs. Not only were you saved by grace through faith through the work of Jesus and justified and made His child, but He's already foreknown. He's already predestined your glorification. It's already accomplished. Look, y'all see it in the text? It's the golden chain. Those He justified, those He also glorified. Past tense. Let the Bible teach us what the Word of God says. Scripture asserts... And teaches us in 1 Peter 4, 3, that He is able to guard your salvation to the day you appear in heaven. Chapter 4, verse 30 of 
Ephesians says that believers have been sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. Sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. You know, in, in our vernacular as lay people, you know what we'd say? The only way you can take, only way you can die and go to hell as a believer is take the Holy Spirit with you. Is that going to happen? Absolutely not. Because if you've been sealed, folks, He's there forever as a child of God. Matthew 24, 20. Jesus asserts that it's impossible for the elect to be led astray. Jesus asserts that everyone who belongs to the Son, believes on Him, will have eternal life. Are y'all getting this? All right, let me, let me wrap this up because I know the hour's getting late. Is anybody bored? Anybody got anywhere to go? All right. Concluding observations. Have you ever thought about the fact that the author may not share the same concern that we share? I mean, when we read this text, we have deep concern about our own personal salvation. Don't we? Has it ever occurred to you that the writer, when he was writing to these particular readers, may not have had the same concern that we have? We, we say, can I lose my salvation? If I do, I'll never turn back. But the writer's primary concern was not to say to the reader, I had the reader say, oh my goodness, am I really saved? The goal is that you persevere. And if you're not continuing in persevering, guess what? You're not saved. It's not that you hadn't lost it, it's that you never had it to begin with. And so he's concerned with perse per persevering. If you think you're in the race, by all means this morning, you better stay in the running. If you're in the race and you're saved, make sure you press on and finish the race. This book is immensely pastoral or pastoral. It mixes a lot of encouragement with comfort, but it also has a lot of exhortation and fear. But you know, that's what it means to be a pastor, isn't it? I mean, sometimes I'm going to love you to death. I'm going to comfort the afflicted. But sometimes I'm going to afflict the comfortable, right? Because, and that's what the reader does. That's what the writer does. Sometimes it's comfort and encouragement, right? But other times it's exhortation and fear. So the writer's doing this. Now, let's make this practical. Imagine somebody comes up to you and says, Hey, I want to tell you something. I feel that my faith is slipping away. I feel less and less engaged. The things of God are not good for me anymore. And in fact, there are times I'm tempted to sin, but I want to turn back and I want to be done with this. Uh, I, excuse me. Whew, scared me. Uh, those things don't bring me joy anymore. Uh, I, I have the struggle and anxiety and misery, and there's whole, a whole lot more joy for me back on the other end. And, you know, I'm telling you honestly and transparently that I'm considering abandoning my Christian faith. I'm going back to where I was. What do you tell somebody like that? Do you say, you know, you might not want to do this because you'll lose some kind of blessing in the millennial kingdom. Is that what you would really say to somebody like that? There's just a few covenant blessings that you're missing out of. And, you know, see you later. But just, you know, you need to understand that you're not going to be the Christian you ought to be. Uh, and you're going to miss out on some rewards if you don't get your head on right and get your helmet right. Folks, that is some kind of mystical theology built on a chicken coop foundation. That's not what you say to somebody who's wanting to abandon the faith. I think your response depends upon the circumstances presented by the person. There could be times when you would say, I want to urge you. You may feel like you're slipping away, but God is faithful. Don't you want to say that? Sometimes you want to say that to people. The God who made the promise, 
Hebrews 6 actually becomes one of the greatest encouragements for eternal security because God did it with an oath and a promise. Whereby God can't break it because if he did, he'd be a liar. And God doesn't lie. And you say to them, God has made his promise. The work that God began in you, he is faithful and just who he is faithful to complete that work. Now, could you in good conscience tell somebody that? That's genuinely transparent. That's that's genuinely saying to you, I'm honest. I'm just, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. Yes, I think that is a legitimate way that you could deal with someone like that. They need to know that God's grip on them is stronger than their grip on him. And you need to encourage them. Now, let's say another person comes to you, but they've got a sense of defiance in their voice. There's no agony that they're slipping away from anything. They're just determined to do what they want to do. And in this place, you know what? If you turn back from Jesus Christ, you're going to go to hell. Wow, it's quiet in here. Folks, that's what this text is saying. You've been all over the truth. You've sat in services. You've seen the Holy Spirit of God work. You know full well what the living God is up to. And no, you haven't trusted Him personally, but you're claiming to. And if a person comes to you and says, you know what, all this God stuff, I'm tired of this. I'm done with it. I'm going to turn my back on Jesus, and I'm not concerned about heaven whatsoever. I think it's totally appropriate appropriate to let the weight of this argument rest squarely on their shoulders. Right? Y'all think that's true? Some of us say, I don't have the guts to do that. Look, folks, you need to be real careful. You're going to end up neutering the truth of this passage if you just dumb it down. Because it is true. If there are people who were so close... They they were apparent believers, and they just say no to Jesus Christ and walk 100% away. Folks, there is no more sacrifice for their sin. There's nowhere else to go. It's either Him or no salvation. Or do they need to hear this? They don't need to hear, well, you might not want to do that. And you know, if you're really saved, you're never going to perish. See you later. Now, I think what you need to say is if you trample underfoot the blood of the Son of God, it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. Is that not what the Bible says? Y'all saw that, didn't you? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of an angry God. So, folks, endurance is what Hebrews is about. God is not teaching us in this book that you need to look backwards every single day to make sure you're saved. He's telling you to move forward. And in your continuing and persevering, you're proving that you are a born-again child of God. Stay in the race. Now, the truth of the meaning of the passage, like we preached it today, will help us to navigate through difficulties when people tell us you can lose your salvation. But I believe the Bible clearly teaches that those who are in Christ Jesus are going to persevere. You know why? Because the perfect Savior perfected your salvation. So those who are preserved will persevere. If you're truly born of God, you're going to do this. And the Bible teaches it over and over and over again. They're real warnings, folks. Now, I want to end on a high note. Let me give you some encouragement. Some real good encouragement. You remember how I ended uh, or when I talked about Hebrews chapter 7? I told you I'd come back to, to the Lord praying for you. Chapter 7, verse 25. Consequently... He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through Him, since He always lives to make intercession for them. Robert Murray McShane once said this, If I knew Jesus was praying for me in the other room, I would not fear a thousand enemies. 
Well, I want to tell you something. McShane knew something. He knew that Jesus Christ is established in heaven for us. And he has an effective intercession for us. How do you know within a sh- without a shadow of a doubt that you are going to be completely saved and that you're going to be saved forever? Folks, it has nothing to do with you. It has nothing to do with your obedience, your faithfulness, or your personal holiness. Now, all those things ought to be in you if you're saved. But you keeping your salvation, you're not saved by grace and kept by your performance. You didn't give him anything to save you, and you can't give him anything to keep you. It's all by grace through faith. So here's the deal. Ultimately, you will be saved because of who's praying for you. Oh, ain't this good? I'm going to turn it over. Listen, you're ultimately going to be saved because of the one who is praying for you. And the Bible says he never stops praying for you. So that means you can't lose your salvation. Amen? He is ever interceding for you. The Bible says he always does this. We can't hear what he's praying for us right now. But have you ever read John 17? Father, you've given me these out of the world. They're mine and yours, and I'm going to keep them forever. That's Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. Isn't it awesome to know that he's praying for us? Not just his disciples, but he makes that transition in verse 25, and he says, and Father, the ones you're going to give me out of this world, I'm going to keep them too. The ones you give me, they're yours. They were yours from eternity, and they're mine. I love that, don't you? He's John 17, what about... Romans 8, who shall lay any charge against God's elect? If God be for us, who can be against us? Don't you think the Lord of glory is interceding that way? What about Simon, Peter? Satan has demanded permission to sift you as wheat. By the way, you know the enemy can't come to you unless the master allows it. He had to go to Jesus. He had to go to the Father and say, give me permission to sift Peter There's not a thing that comes into the life of the child of God that is not first sifted through the hands of the Father. And so it is with Peter. And what does Jesus say? Peter, I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. Isn't it awesome to know that the Son of God is praying for us in this manner? Jesus' answer, he's going to pray you safely through. Our security is totally linked to his intercession on our behalf. By the way, folks, If anybody ever has the ear of the Father, it's the Son. Where is He seated? Do you think the Father can see the sacrifice? You think He can see the full payment for your sin and mine right beside Him? If anybody ever has the ear of the Father, it's the Son. And He's ever interceding for you. Your acceptability in heaven is not based on you. It is based on the Son sitting beside the Father. He's ever living to make intercession for us. Here's the big question. Do you have Jesus as your priest and king? Is he? This is the main point, isn't it? If that point is not settled, nothing else matters. If you want to really honor God, you need to glory today in the finished work of Jesus Christ. We ought to be a church that gets excited about the finished work of Jesus. Right? What he did for all time for us. That's what he did. We need to learn to savor the finished work of Christ. It, we need to marvel at the fact that our great high priest paid it all. You honor him most when you rest completely and trust in the work that the Son of God did for you. 
You can do nothing to save yourself. What you're called by God to do is rest wholly and completely in Jesus Christ, in Jesus Christ and Him crucified and risen. And you ought to have this attitude, Father, Lord Jesus, I'm trusting totally in your finished work to forgive me of my sins and pay my sin debt. And if that doesn't qualify me for heaven, then I'll just be damned to hell. That's how much we ought to thoroughly believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Right? He alone can save us. And if He don't save us, we're damned. That's the strength of what the Bible says to us. We profess to believe this, but we live like closet Roman Catholics, don't we? Well, I need a little bit more penance. I just need a few more good works. Folks, this morning, here's a sermon for you. Rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. If He didn't finish the work and you haven't received it, then there's no chance of heaven. There's only one way to be received before the Father as perfect, and that's through the perfect Son of God. When you turn from sin and self and trust Him only. Don't you love the song, Jesus paid it all. And when before thy throne I stand in Him complete, Jesus died my soul to save, my lips shall still repeat. You know, you know what you're going to repeat all the days of your life when you're in heaven? Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, but He washed it white as snow. Are you saved? We've put eternal security to the test. What do you think the Bible says about that? Well, I think it says that those who are saved will persevere. Because the Son of God will make sure you persevere. Right? Let's pray. Lord... Father, I know the hour is late. Lord, the invitation, though, is so vitally important. Father, I know I had a lot to say. Lord, I pray that it's what you would have had me to say from your word. And Lord, I know there are people in this building that have struggled with their salvation. I know that it's probably been uh, taught and, and thought about and asked more than any single thing in this church body. Lord, I, I pray that tonight, today, Lord, people uh, walk away with closure. That they know that you're the Son of God who saves forever, eternally. And Lord, I pray that they would walk in it. Lord, for those who are just, Lord, apparent believers in this building. Lord, may they move forward and totally trust you for salvation. And not turn back. And if they turn back, Lord, there is no sacrifice for their sin. Lord... Please speak to their hearts today. We're we're at your mercy to save souls. And for Christians, Lord, help us to mature, to know we have the helmet of salvation squarely fixed, and that our salvation is totally based on what you performed on Calvary, not what we can do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.